I heard. I heard. Brian, where are you based out of? That's a great question. Um, so you're not taking any reservations so for October? I have an office here, huh? and I have an office in New York, but I'm... Uh, Wait, this I'm, is New York? Yeah. Oh, you've uh, no, I'm sorry, Toronto. Got it. Um, and then okay, so um, I was BMO, one of BMO's I, very so, first okay, virtual so employees. Back a week from now? Meaning... When I came to BMO 10 years ago, okay, they coded me as a virtual employee because I lived in Minnesota because at the time I was married and had kids and shit like that and wanted to not move the kids again. So I live in Florida. My my U.S. residence is Florida. Oh, wow. Where? So Naples. So I bought nice. a place in Naples right at the f***ing top, right, February. But I got I got my interest rate right after Putin invaded. Okay. So I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a uh, fixed income guy. But I did the same thing. I just top took the Florida real estate top took the real estate market, but I got a great I got a <laughs> sub three 30 year fix. So I have a little bit of war situation. I bought in November oh. and it's new construction. Oh. So I'm not getting a mortgage until 2024. So I don't know. So I gutted my place. I gutted my place and it's oh. ready October 1st. Oh, so you're you're almost then. You're yeah. good. You're good then. Yeah. You're good then. And if this recession I think is coming hits, you'll you'll refi lower. Yep. <laughs> that's the that's the goal. Uh we we want to stay upbeat. Where were you when you heard Queen Elizabeth II died? I got a text from my uh, assistant who um has an in at Reuters and said she died at 10 a.m. our time, 3 okay. p.m. Okay. So they're not releasing it because not everyone's there yet. Because she might be a vampire. <laughs> she might be a fucking vampire. Right. They want to see if it's <laughs> if it's like actually. Well, I think they're waiting for Harry to get there because he was driving. Okay. So my understanding is is that now uh, Prince Charles will be the king and Camilla Parker Bowles will be the queen consort. And then he doesn't want the gig. Yeah, so he's going to abdicate, right? He's going to abdicate to Prince William. Yeah. Uh the non, the non, like wacky one. So, but he's going to be king for like a minute, just yeah. like the dude in the twenties. Well, yes, but so here's the thing, though. Prince William, Prince William's the one whose wife looks like a Disney princess. Yeah. Uh, they have three kids. Like yep. they're going to be the new royal family. Right. Of Westeros. Of Westeros. That's right. He will ascend to the the seventh <laughs> throne. I don't know anything the, the about the monarchy. Uh, I don't either. I know enough. I know enough to sound like an idiot. Um, the other brother, the other brother was never in the line of succession. No. Which is why him being like, we don't want in on the royal family. Yeah, I wouldn't either. Well, William's kid, William and Kate's kids got higher standing than he does. That's right. And then, right. So, so that's the line of succession. It has nothing to do with the brother. Right. So like in medieval times, if you were the second brother, you went to the military. And if you were the third brother, you were a priest because there was no future. You know, for in the in the nobility view, as it, of any standard. And if you were the third brother, you were a technician. That's the fourth brother would be the, the technician. Uh, were you a point and figure technician, or <laughs> yeah, yeah, the worst kind, yeah. <laughs> Elliot Wave, yeah, a little Dorsey right? <laughs> All right, All right we're, we're back. I think we're gonna be ready to go. Yeah. Voices Color check me. Mike. Color check me. All right. Uh, Anyway, sad news. She seemed. I met the queen. I didn't meet her. I shouldn't say that. I looked at. They call it looking at the queen when you see her. Yeah. I was in Grand Cayman in 1993, and what's that shitty beer they have there? In the Caymans? Yeah, that's not Red Stripe. No, that's Jamaica. No, it's like it's in a silver can. I don't know. I was. I wasn't even of age. 93. I was. 
16, I want to say. You were drinking beer. Yeah, I probably was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so they, so they, they're like, oh, the whole island is in an uproar. And I'm like, what's going on? Why is everyone going crazy? They're like, the queen just landed. The queen of what? The, the Queen of England just arrived in Grand Cayman. So the entirety of the island went to this, like, field to, like, just witness her walk from something to another thing. And she did, like, the queen wave. And, like, I was standing on the top of a fence to try to see this. I really, I really didn't understand, like, no. what the big deal was. But people were openly weeping. And not even English people. This is in the Caymans. Well, I'm supposed to be in London a week from today. Okay. That could get all... Yeah, I don't. Sideways. I don't know. Depends upon how much, how many days she lies in wait. In state. In state. I'm sorry. Yeah, she ain't waiting anymore. But then I think it's. I don't know how many days it is, but I'm probably not going to be seeing clients next Friday in, in London. That would be my guess. No, it's right. It's going to be like a national. What the hell is that? <laughs> no, they're not. All right. Was the Queen? It. Was Queen Elizabeth actually in The Naked Gun too, or is that not her? It was an actress. It was not actually. <laughs> I wasn't sure if it was a cameo. Or no, not. Leslie Nielsen did not <laughs> fling the Queen of England across a table. <laughs> that was a, a Rico Palazzo. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Where, where the hell was Enrique, Enrique Palazzo now? Uh, all right. Anyway, sad news. Yeah, they'll be in a state of mourning. The whole country probably for six years. Yeah, and, and working for a Canadian bank for ten years, I know more about Canada than in the UK than I ever thought I would. But you're not would want to. Are you? How much time do you spend up there? Um, in a normal world. Uh, probably 60, 40. And the reason is, is 60, 60% there, 40% here. And, um, in terms of being up there, because the majority of the money that we run is in Canada. Right. So we run about 6 billion in Canada and two in the United States, but we're building that up in the U S. So it's important from a fiduciary side of things. And plus BMO hired me 10 years ago to kind of bring a U.S. and Canadian strategy together. I didn't know shit about Canadian strategy, right? So yeah. I had to go out and do all oh, of that stuff. Oh, it's just, it's gold mines and oil pipelines. That's all you need it's to thing. Yeah. Go meet the Enbridge CEO and- uh, That's right. Talk what, are you, to the, what are you worried about? Talk to the, I, I call the, the Canadian banking systems heads of the five families, right? It's, well, it's a cartel. Well, they really are powerful in wealth management from what I, I know a lot of Canadian advisors and they really like, that's where all the money is. They don't have an like a thriving RIA- Ecosystem no, 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 the they don't. They don't. And but they're cowboys. Uh, the, the the brokers are cowboys. There, they're still building portfolios. They're still doing stuff. Yeah, rep, that, rep SPM. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, like when I was when I was at Merrill, they're all PBEG uh, brokers. They're all kind of trying to build their own portfolios and stuff. But uh, they're trying to get to the to the um, manage money side of things. Of course, you know, and so that just makes more sense for them. But the thing that I tell people about the Canadian banks, it's really interesting, is that. We are cowboys here in the United States. We think we think of things like for twelve months. I don't know, it's not working them out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They think like twenty five years. They like take a twenty five year look at things. Like when when TD bought Cowan, right? So every every once in a while, you have to have a war. So that's what the mafia. If you ever watched Godfather, you know, you got to yeah. have a war, right? So what the way I look at the heads of the five families in Canada, you have nice blue, evil blue, greeny, Ola. And CIBC. CIBC is the contrarian bank. Do whatever they're not doing. Ola is Scotiabank because they put all their cards in Latin America. <laughs> TD's greeny because they're green, but they're the they're the consumer bank in the United States. Yes. Right? Yes. 
RBC is the wealth management bank in the United States, and BMO is the commercial bank. So mm. they're all, you know, cartel, stay in your lane, baby, stay in your lane. Now with TD going into account, it's interesting, but TD's capital market slash institutional business. Was TD like Toronto Dominion Bank yeah. bought Cowan and Company? Bought Cowan and Company. I didn't know that. I didn't know that at all. Is that yeah. recently? Yeah, a couple of weeks ago. Oh, that just happened. Yeah. How did I not hear that? Okay. Cowan's, Cowan is like solid second tier in, in America, would you say? Or Yeah, you know, I've been doing this for my 33rd year, and oh, wow. things have changed so much. Like we used to call them the regional yeah, yeah, yeah. Regionals. Um, but they've got a great franchise on the tech and healthcare side. Um, but we'll have to see what that means for the capital market side of things. But clearly, the banks in Canada, where their growth is centered on the U.S., that's where you want to be, right? I mean, the majority of the Canadians hate when I say this. They hate it. But their GDP is tied to the U.S. It's not about energy and, and gold and banks. It's, it's about consumer. it's about the consumer. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's some awesome consumer companies in, in in Canada, and but their GDP is so correlated and their performance is correlated to the U.S. Again, they hate that because they kind of want to be Europe light uh, in their socialists up there. Um, but at the end of the day, um, there's a lot of really great companies, and so part of us being bullish is just this whole view on liking North America and Canada's part of it. So, uh. Canadian investors also have a very heavy country home country bias the way that most countries do. But in the case of Canada, if you have that home country bias, you really do end up with a portfolio that's heavily weighted toward banks, oil, gold. All right, let John, get, let John, oh, John step in. Do the, make the show. Make the show. All right, Compounded Friends, episode... 61. What? 61. 61. How did we do that? Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by me, Michael Batnick, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Duncan, this uh, week, my little guy, or was it last week? Logan turned three years old. He got some checks, uh, and uh, I deposited them into his liftoff account. You know, and you know what? I, I also sprinkled a little bit on my top. On top, I'm okay. his dad, right? I got him a birthday present. You didn't take a cut. I did not. Ooh, not only did I not take a cut, I even sprinkled in some on top, on top of my regular scheduled monthly payments. He'll thank me later. So, if you want to invest alongside Logan alongside Kobe, alongside myself. Go to liftoffinvest.com. You can get access to one of our certified financial planners. If you've got questions, investment, planning, anything of the sort, we got you covered. Liftoffinvest.com. Is everyone excited to be here? I'm Isn't assuming- there a Roger Maris uh, thing that we should be talking about? Number 61 that here? 61. And that's coming, isn't it? This could be, yeah, this could be the new record. The new record for podcasts here. Next week, though, I think we'll break the record at 62. We'll see, we'll see what happens. Hey, uh, Belsky's here. Brian, let me give you an official introduction. I'm so excited that you're here. We planned this a long time ago, and I knew it was going to be a great show, and the timing really couldn't be better. So uh, Brian is the chief investment strategist and leader of the investment strategy group for BMO. Brian has more than 30 years, 33 years, I've recently <laughs> learned. Um, I'm hearing in my ear. 30 years of experience in the investment industry, previously holding senior roles at Oppenheimer, 
Merrill Lynch, Piper Jaffrey, among others. Other than BMO, what was your favorite uh, firm to work at, or Mer- what was the best culture? Merrill Lynch. Why? For sure. Um, That's where you really became known. I think I feel like right. Your stuff for, for Merrill. Uh, I was that well. It was actually Piper. Oh, it was okay. Piper. Because Mark Hain, because of Mark Haynes at CNBC, and I'd love to tell you the story. Yeah, but, t- wait, tell it. Tell it now. Tell it now. So we love Mark Haynes. Oh my gosh, this man. Um, so if you remember what happened, nine eleven, the markets opened up that following Monday, right? Never forget. And if you remember, so wait, so it closed on a Tuesday. Nine eleven was a Tuesday. It was a Tuesday. They spent the whole week somehow getting that shit ready, yep. and were able to open it Monday. Yep. And that was like a moral victory like none other at that, at that I time. I mean, it was such a – talk about perspective. I mean, let's go back. I was supposed to be in the Tower, Tower 2 that day. My travel schedule changed, and I actually – last minute, and I was still signed out to be in New York City. And back in those days, you didn't have all this stuff, right, all the electronics. Yeah, yeah. So um, I was in Milwaukee, and, and thankfully – I had a car or a truck, actually, and I drove back to Minneapolis where Piper Jeffrey was. I show up on this all-hands-on-deck meeting on Wednesday, tried to find what the hell's going on, right? Tried to figure this out. And I walk in, and people looked at me like I was a f***ing ghost. Like, you're supposed to be in New York. They couldn't get you. Oh, they thought, they thought you were gone. Yeah. Yeah. It, wow. So anyway, um, so the following Monday— you remember President Bush came out and said, we're going to patriotic buying, support the stock market. Do you remember that yeah, kind of d- stuff? it didn't work. But didn't yeah. work, right? So because, But the market opened up, and mm-hmm. I had just been talking to a few hedge funds. I'm like, sell, sell, sell. Like, get out, right? And I get on CNBC. Canadian. Yeah. No, well, I'm an American for the record. I, all right, I, I all right, was right, born right. and raised in Minnesota. I do have the accent, you know? Uh, right. But um, so – I get on CNBC, and Martha McCallum was on CNBC at the time, and she did the show right after opening bell or some, yeah, yeah, something yeah. right after right after Squawk Box. And she's like, Brian, um, I was on camera at Piper. Brian, how come the market's going down? Who's selling? And I said, Martha? I said, even if I knew, I wouldn't tell you. Yeah, it was David Rosenberg. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was actually a couple of hedge funds that are no longer around. But anyway, so Haynes saw that, mm. and he said, I want to get this Belsky kid on. Okay. So the next day, you know, it's very – even back then, you couldn't be on CNBC two days in a row. So next day, I'm on Squawk Box. Same thing, and he's grilling me. And at the end of the interview – This is Mark? Mark Haynes. Yeah, okay, it was amazing. Yeah. It was yeah. so cool. And so I'm on with Haynes, and toward the end of the interview, he goes, I really like this Belsky kid. We should get him on more. Okay. The next month, I'm starting to co-host Squawk Box. Look at you. <laughs> How old were you? I was uh, 12. You know, I can't, um, I, can't, I can't get on Squawk Box now. I can't cross over. Either can I, I. Yeah, I'm a halftime report guy. That's it. I so. know. There, there's a story behind that. But anyway, um, so I was, shit, 35. I was 35. Okay. Um, yeah, 35. And so every- what were, you sa- what were you saying? Like that, like what, what is there to really, this has nothing to do with investing, investment strategy. It had nothing to do with strategy. I'm like, you know, we were in a period that, remember, we were kind of double dip recession. It was, it was. We were in, we were in a shitty bear market already. We were in a shitty bear market. A year in. And he was like giving me shit because I was, I was, a, I was an underweight on tech. And like, how can be a piper and be an underweight tech? Yeah. And I'm like, come on, man. I mean, I, I don't get paid by investment banking. I mean, I, I'm, I'm told to tell people what to do, not what they want to hear. Mm. And it was not popular. And I'm telling people, talking about dividend growth and all the same stuff I've been talking about for a long, long time. And he really, really liked that I was just direct and no bullshit. 
Because that's, that's what he was like. Yeah, yeah, he was great, man. And and every month from there, so from September 2001 to then he left the show in 05, mm. um, I was still kind of in the schedule on, on co-hosting Squawk Box. And actually, I was co-hosting Squawk Box the day that Bear Stearns went away. Oh, boy. So I've had I've just been blessed and fortunate. The you CBC- know that was you know that was St. Patrick's Day. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. So not a lot of people realize that they, they went under on March seventeenth <clears throat> of of oh eight. Okay, do you remember the weekend before that though? Because I was in I sure do. It was an ice storm in Philly, and I was at Delaware Funds, okay. and we got trapped there. And the guy that ran Delaware Funds was an Irish guy, so he's got a keg on. <laughs> <laughs> and we we're it's the first time and only time in my career that I had half a buzz on when we were doing an institutional meeting because we were drinking beer. And so I was living in Ridgewood, New Jersey at the time, and the the SUV driver said we got to leave now, and we went to the Philly train station and couldn't get on a train. So he said, "I'm driving you back. Let's get a 12 pack of beer and a pizza." And he, great. he and I drank beer. And ate pizza on the way back to Ridgewood. But anyway, CNBC and Mark Haynes, such an amazing man and great to me for all those years. And then I was one of his first guests on on Squawk on the Street, and he was just amazing. So Right, then they created Squawk on the Street, yeah. uh, Squawk SVU, all the Squawks. Uh, <laughs> Squawk, Squawk Alley is another one now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, Mark was the man. And if you go to the New York Stock Exchange to this day, still a picture. The, the stairwell to get up to the catwalk where they do uh, your makeup and mic you up, there's a there's a a photo of Mark framed uh, and like a plaque under it, and I hope that's there for the next two hundred years. Yeah. So, uh, well, listen, we're really excited to have you today, and uh, I said the timing is perfect. So, from my perspective, twenty something years doing this, I can't ever remember a time where I personally felt it was so flip a coin between like recession, bear market, or Nope, you know what? It's fine. We're gonna we're about to lift right out of this. I really don't have a, a strong view of which way it could go. I could be so easily convinced yeah. in either direction. And most of the people that we talk to are absolutely convinced this is on the verge of getting much worse. You are the opposite. You are steadfastly bullish. So I'm so excited to give our audience the other side of the coin. And uh, I know you do so with a lot of data and a lot of uh, experience. So thank you so much for no, coming thank in. thank you. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Your new your new note is called, Make No Mistake, It Has Been a Battle to Remain Bullish, or The Battle to Remain Bullish. What What's the story behind what prompted you to write the note, other than you knew you were coming here? I, it's all about the podcast, right? Okay. I, I right, did right. this for this. I mean, come on. Let's, I figured, let's, but- let's be clear. <laughs> No, it, it's entitled "Hold the Line," and I and I wanted to talk about the battle to remain bullish, and and I thought about kind of pop culture. A lot of times when I do public speaking, I kind of warned your producer before. I'm kind of half Deadpool, half Jesus Christ because I'll throw good out mix. Pop. exactly good mix. Two kind of cool dudes. Um, I, I'll I'll throw out some pop culture and swear a little bit, but then I'll also talk about scripture, and um, but. I'm in, I'm in, I'm on vacation like the majority of the Western world. I'm in my second, kind of the second half of the vacation. I'm getting emails from institutional clients because my job is, my principal job aside from managing money, and I hope we get a chance to talk about that, is to t- talk to institutional investors around the world. And, and these people are emailing me like, Belsky, you were wrong. Why did you, why were you saying this? You know, June, July rally was a sucker rally, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, 
okay, I can't handle anymore. I got, I got, I got to write something. Yeah. So I took inspired, out my, you got inspired. I got inspired and I took out my iPhone machine and on the notes thing and I cranked out this report. And then Tuesday we kind of edited it and put some cool charts and people that work for me. Are much See, if you were a blogger, you would have just smashed publish and then yeah, tweeted it. And then no, I can't do that. Yeah. 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 No, okay, I know. It's be- no, it's better this way. Yeah. So you had some time to think about good, what you wrote and you still believed it. Yeah, good luck with the career Belsky working for a bank. That's right. right. With the compliance. But I really thought that people, it really kind of came back to my core thought, Josh, that people really lack perspective and, um, that August is August never matter. So I was, I heard you, by the way, I heard you on CNBC yesterday. Um, I was, I was away, but I was watching and uh, I heard you make that point And that was like really intriguing to me. It, maybe it doesn't matter in that it's not a pivotal month. Right. Um, but like it matters if people are making a lot of money or losing a lot of money. It definitely matters to sentiment. Uh, or do I have that wrong? Sentiment in terms of feeling for, for, um, kind of setting up the fall, but we looked at it from an analytical perspective and we said, okay, so if you look at August his, historically and you, and you correlate that to year end performance, the perform, the, the relationship is spurious, not to bore anybody with respect to math. What's or, the R, what's the R squared on that bad boy? I don't know. I don't know. Michael, Michael crank it out. But it does matter for September and October in the whole part that I was coming at is that people are giving me shit on my vacation because the market's rolling over in August. Nobody was working. Well, the cat's away, the mice will play. Every year. There was every year. I remember I was at Merrill and we got this in, in August of 07, they said, cancel your vacations because yeah. the shit's hitting the fan. It's, uh, really? It happens every August. I mean, what's the big, what's the, what's now the, you know, August doesn't really matter on Wall Street. No. The CEO of Goldman Sachs spends the month DJing in the Hamptons. <laughs> that's, how, that's how you know it doesn't really matter. So I, I use this pop culture thing in the report. I, in the, Early in the report, I talked about hold the line with respect to, you know, Saving Private Ryan and Hacksaw Ridge and the Patriot. Have you ever seen those movies? They're and the, Braveheart. Braveheart. Yep. Yeah. That's a big one. Hold hold the line. Hold the line. Where's the line? Um, and um, 3,400. I'd say, I'd say 3,780. Okay. 32. No, anyway. Um, <laughs> 12, 13 volt, whatever it takes. Anyway, um, so I use this this pop culture reference from 1993, uh, the the album from County Crows, August and everything after, yeah, right? Great record. So it really happens about everything after. And this year more than ever, and here's why it's this more this year more than ever. I still believe that we're in the early stages of transitioning back to normalcy. What the hell does that mean? It means that we've we've all heard in financial markets, well, those that work for big banks got to be in the office three days a week. Mm-hmm. That's going to turn into four, and that's going to turn into five. We're getting back into living again. That's really, really good for everybody in terms of the economy, for cities. We're going out to lunch. For we're marriages. spending money. Yeah. Exactly. That, but, but more this year than ever, keep in mind that September and October, because of the inflation data is coming out, because of the Fed, we already know all that, right? But what we're missing is that this is conference season. We have not had a proper conference season since 2019 investor conference, whether that's the JP Morgan conference in San Francisco or the Code conference. They've been bullshit done. virtual. Nobody actually Nobody, pays attention. Yeah, yep. we're not engaged. Everyone's excited. We're, we're together. We're humans. We need to be together. So it's the stage to get back into what's real. And I think what I what I think is going to end up happening is as we start to feel like things are getting real again, we're going to understand is we're going to get it like. It's not the end of the world. We're actually in a pretty good market here. We got great companies. The market did its job by doing its correction. You don't have to apply the rule of thumb that now earnings have to go down 20% and, and unemployment has to double. We talk about that in the report. I think it's not going to happen. 
This is you. Quote, we simply believe that most investors are not, all caps, are not positioned for, all caps, any good news and are, all caps, ignoring the – did my daughter teach you how to write? Uh, ignoring the signposts <laughs> that we believe have been developing and which will lead to an end-of-the-year melt-up in stock prices. To use one last war analogy, time for investors to get out of the foxholes and bunkers. What's done is done. Stop lingering in the smoke and pillage behind you. Hold the line and move forward. Shit, I hope you're right. I would love a year-end melt-up. Like, I, I really would. And and I think, though, the problem for people is that there hasn't been enough damage in the earn, on the earnings side. We had uh, communication services, 27% de-rating in multiple. Tech, 25%. Financials, 20%. Oil and gas, 22%. We've had the multiple compression everywhere except utilities, like every sector. The earnings the earnings um, estimates have not come down almost at all. In fact, there should be up 11% this year. So for I think from most people's perspective, the reason why they're remaining bearish or they're not as bullish as you think they should be, they just feel like, of course, that's coming next. And you're arguing that it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to because I think one of my biggest problems, what I've been fighting for the majority of my 33-year career is that I think people have become too formulaic, too academic, too by the book. We're so afraid to be wrong. We don't want to be right. I'm going to use an old reference because I'm an old guy. Remember Lotus 1, 2, 3 in the backslash when you're building spreadsheets? Really going deep here on this. But your life doesn't have to add up to, to double underline. I think investing is like life and life is like investing. And so I think the more formulaic we we are, ultimately when shit goes sideways, we said, oh, the formula told me to buy it. So that's why. We've forgotten how to uh, pick stocks. But on the earnings side, what I think is really interesting and important, I think that there's been a secular, not structural, but secular trend on company sandbagging, on companies under-promising and over-delivering. And I think it comes... It was out of result of the tech wreck. This is where the perspective comes. If you look at the late 1990s and in, in, in 2000 and then the buy the dip craze that started 2001, um, analysts were rock stars. Whatever the analyst said, that's the number, right? And they lost all credibility after that. And then quantitative analysts really took over in terms of screening. I'm going to prove what the numbers are because I'm going to look at all consensus numbers. We've forgotten how to pick stocks. We've forgotten how to look at stories. And so I think that's really put a psyche on the market not to believe in any of the earnings. Someone asked me a really great question. Um, well, I mean, you can see, though, it's the gamesmanship. It's like beat by a penny or beat by two cents, your, your stock goes up. Beat by one cents, your stock is flat. Hit the number or below, your stock goes down. Yeah. That's not the company's fault. That's not nope. the analyst's fault. That's just what the market has decided. That's the game they're going to play. And then we had whisper numbers in the 90s, which were f***ing stupid. Yep. Because um, then the whisper number became more important than the real number. The whisper number was made up by a website. It didn't even really exist. So it's kind of like that is the game. It's not – I agree with you. It's stupid, but it's like it, that's the game that's being so played. So that brings up a great point for right now. Right. So second quarter, companies were rewarded in terms of the rally for not being as bad as everybody thought. Yes. Right. So are we going to have the same thing in the third quarter? Mm. Right. No one's talking about this. We'll see. And numbers actually have gone up. Like if you look at the growth rate for for, for uh, current year earnings for 2022, they're up 5% since the beginning of the year. Can I do Steve Weiss? <laughs> it's all energy. 
I know, but it's true. <laughs> it, but it's true. It is true, but look at the energy's contribution to earnings growth. If we can have a really big number, you can be yeah. like a really big dude, but you're not really contributing anything. You know what right. I'm saying? Because you're really small, actually. And so, <laughs> why are you laughing? Um, That's the story of his life. So, but but tech, think about tech, right? I mean, yeah. tech's still the juggernaut. And and I think tech is still very very well positioned in terms of, of the big tech names. And like Apple came out yesterday, just something phenomenal. I mean, ph- phenomenal. It's just amazing on what they did in terms of no raising prices. Yeah. That's leadership, yeah. right? But anyway, um, I think people are going to continue to buy tech and buy the U.S. market just because of the stability of earnings and the high standard deviation of earnings everywhere else. We have low standard deviation earnings here. I mean – just look at where what the currencies have done in Europe, and look at Europe as an asset has lost a thousand a thousand basis points of world GDP the last last decade. Why the hell would you want to buy be be invested in Europe? Why would you want to be in China given given that lost decade of performance there? I think it's Fortress America. I do. Now it doesn't mean that we're gonna have not gonna have problems. It doesn't mean that we're still trying to figure out what the hell the number is. But think about the the analogy on earnings, right? So stocks went up because earnings weren't as bad. So now let's start talking about inflation. What if we start printing numbers that aren't 8%? 8%, yeah. Right? Could happen. It could happen. And then people are like, go, go, go. Because going back to why the hell I was writing this report on my, on my vacation is my clients are underperforming. Institutions are underperforming because they sat on their hands in June, July because they didn't believe it because of what you said earlier. We're waiting for the next shoe to drop. We're waiting for earnings to drop, right? So they're waiting. So the FOMO trade hasn't even started yet. The FOMO trade hasn't even started. It is 17% rally from the bottom of the market in mid-June until the top in mid-August. Now we fell into a pause. You argue it's because a lot of people are on vacation and who gives a shit. Okay, now it's September, whatever. We really aren't giving much of that rally back. We kind of seem to be stabilizing. Yeah. Right? Why, why, why isn't why aren't things deteriorating? I think people are getting frustrated that the numbers aren't aren't like getting softer. So I, I'm going to come up with another. How, you're totally right, but it's true. How? Why aren't things worse? Yeah. Why won't it melt down already so I can buy? I'm going to butcher the quote, man. Kevin Spacey in Usual Suspects, right? Talks about and he copied the quote from somebody else. But the devil's greatest trick is to make everybody believe that he wasn't real, right? Everybody's convinced, man. The world's coming to an end. Mm. What if it doesn't? Right? Yeah. That's the case. Like, I was in— You wrote about this. You said, we're 16 months into this thing. Why isn't the data softening? How come earnings don't suck when you have inflation? Would you like me to answer my opinion? Yeah, let's go. So it's because the prices of everything have gone up. So we're looking at, like, nominal earnings growth. That's really not good in reality. Time out. I have data. So Saveda did this thing. Uh, Saveda did this thing uh, from Bank of America. Who I used to sit next to for years— a couple, love, a couple of weeks her. ago. Yeah. So she did this second quarter sales growth. Nominal, it's up 15%. X Energy, it's only up 9.5%. But no, so nominal numbers are still pretty good. Yeah, because yeah. companies have gotten away with price hikes across the board. Consumers are paying okay, them. But, but that explains why earnings are going up, but consumer sentiment sucks. Yes. Like, that's the answer but to the also, riddle. But these prices are not going to come back down. So if inflation does melt away, then these numbers are real. So, so here's another reality check. Again, a Minnesota kid. Uh, just common sense. I, I'm going. To, I'm on in the midst of a 10 day trip. I'm going to Tel Aviv tomorrow night, and I'm going to Paris. I'm going to London. Hopefully, depends upon what happens um, with some of the current news. But um, I had to go buy a new bag, right? Because all I have is a backpack and a roller bag. I needed like a duffel bag for the paparazzi. Exactly. Well, exactly. Um, and 
I couldn't believe how many people are shopping on Monday. Oh yeah, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, and I and the, I looked around. And I said, "Do you really think these people are going to stop shopping? Are going to stop all of a sudden? Stop? No. I think consumer sentiment's bad because the media's scaring the shit out of everybody. And gasoline. Yeah, and gasoline. Can I, so it's but two things on that. Which consumer is going to stop shopping? The consumer in the bottom in the the consumer in the bottom quartile of the income or wealth distribution is is clearly plagued by high inflation. And we know this from Target and Walmart. Like we know that there's trade downs. They're buying the store brand more than they're buying the premium. Like that we know, but everyone else is really not stopping. No. And the guy from uh, Canada Goose, they make like $600 winter jackets, was on CNBC. He's like, there's there's no slowdown. We're going to have no. a great Christmas. Um, Lululemon, all, like, li- like all systems go. And then you look at Gap in a full meltdown. So it's like people choose – which one of those they want to pay attention to if it aligns with their story. Correct. The same thing and with- you see that all the time. All the time. It's like yesterday on CBC, you started throwing, this company down 24%. You're, you're internalizing it. You're personalizing it. That's why you got to look at everything. The, all 500 companies but in the S&P 500. data doesn't work. No, it doesn't. Right. It doesn't. And the reason why they're personalizing, and it goes back to the whole human nature thing in terms of investing, is that they're so afraid to be wrong and they don't want to be right. So they default to being fearful until they can't be fearful anymore. And then they proceed on with, I, I got I to gotta perform. Is that investing, Josh? And the, Josh? And the answer is no, it's not investing. Yeah, it's posturing. Well, it's, you know, one of the most poisonous things you could do to yourself in this game is to wear a uniform, it's to say, no, I'm on the bull team or no, I'm on the bear team. Because then every new piece of information that comes out you're looking at, at it through the prism of what team you told everybody you play for. Yeah. Um, now, if you're somebody that can be a bear one minute, a bull the next minute, uh, that's great. I don't think most people are that nimble or should be because that's a treadmill. So I don't really know what the right answer is. But I think when people have adopted a market view, from then on, once they've said it out loud, no matter what comes next, it's like, well— Well, especially in public. Well, I was already right, so here's what I think about this data point, right? But, Brian, so, what, so to that point, you, you've been publicly bullish. What can get you to turn bearish? Well, that's a good question. What if the queen died? <laughs> Headlines. <laughs> Sorry. I'm So all of our English listeners, I don't no, think but it's funny. Would you, would you have to see earnings start to deteriorate? Yeah, I, on a short-term basis, I'd have to see this— um, these inflation numbers stick longer than I thought. I would have to see earnings really get crushed. On unemployment? Term. Yeah, unemployment. But here's the thing. Well, all if, you, that- if you would have to see the inflation numbers stick longer than you thought, what happens to stocks between now and then? Like, if you're, like in other words, if you say, if we're still at an eight handle on inflation by December, I would say we're in big trouble. Okay. But what happens to stocks between now and then while you're making up your mind? That's like the thing, right? Yeah, exactly. So and the, the other thing too is that it's a great question, and I'm going to answer it. Sometimes when you're on TV all the time, you, you kind of don't answer questions, and you're good at oh, yeah. it. Yeah, anyway, yeah. But I answer the question that I asked myself. I, ha- I have not been in a period in the – I don't remember a period in this market for really since early 2000s where everybody was bullish. We haven't been in a period where everybody's bullish. Even t- 2019, people were not bullish. You still had a couple people out there that were really negative. I want everybody to be bullish. When that's going to happen, I'm out. I think so. Let me kind of go. That's measured by uh, investors' intelligence. No, or? all that stuff is bullshit. Investor, I mean, I worked at Say Merrill Lynch more. for a long time. Say more. I like it. Go um, on. It's all bull. You know how you judge people's sentiment? You sit across the table from them and you judge by the kind of questions they ask. 
I think the worst thing that's happened in the pandemic is we haven't been able to be around our clients and know when they're lying to us. Mm. Uh, because people don't fill out sentiments. Who cares? Right. Uh, surveys, who cares? But so where I'm going with this is I, I came out in 2010 saying we're in a 20 to 25-year bull market. And I'm not being stubborn. I just still believe that. In 2008, actually, I was still at Merrill Lynch, and I said, 2009, we're going to be up t- double digits. And then 2009, I moved to Oppenheimer because of the merger at, at Merrill, um, moved on. And I said, we're in a bull market. Then I transitioned to a secular bull market. And through all of this, we've been, we've been chastised. It's been, you can use whatever thing you want to say. Climbing the wall of worry, blah, 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 most hated bull market. And, ever. and we've had, you can have cyclical bear markets, which we've had two of them already in this big secular bull. But I think at the end of this, at the very end of this bull market, so let's say eight to 10 years from now, we're going to be back into global synchronized growth. We're going to go be back into a commodity super cycle. We're going to be back into, there's going to be a hot new product or a hot new market that's not China or something different that we don't know what it is. Maybe it's um, um, Malaysia. Maybe it's uh, Zimbabwe came up with some cool drug. Maybe we're going to build a pipeline to Europe. I mean, it's, it's going to be something crazy or we're going to be able to, uh, we're going to be able to Star Trek and, and beam I mean, ourselves to ro- robotics, AI, yeah, something. And yeah. everyone's going to be drinking the Kool-Aid baby. And I'm going to be buying my, my, my cabin in Wisconsin, drinking a bottle of Chopin with a, a bottle of shitty Minnesota beer, smoking cigarettes. I've never smoked a cigarette in my life, and I'm going to be laughing at everybody. I'm going to put everything in fixed income because they're going to tell me, Josh, the magic word, it's different this time. It's different this time. And You don't think we heard any it's different this time uh, last year? In 2021, they weren't saying that? It's different this time to the, for the bulls? The, mark, I, the market structure has permanently changed because of retail enthusiasm for stocks and Bitcoin and crypto and SPACs and – that felt no. like a euphoric moment to me. Well, I don't know. I, I call them the I, I call that the the uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Right? Okay, which is what? So Kathy Woodstock's lover. Okay, longtime former client. Yeah. Okay, Kathy Woodstock's. Yeah, nothing, SPACs, nothing personal. Nothing just personal. A strategy. It's just a strategy. Yeah. Um, the meme stocks. Mm. The spacs. Crypto. And my favorite crypto. Right. Right. Yeah. So the market did a good job taking those out. And then they took out the high multiples, and then they took out the high growth, then they took out now the, the generals, and, and then the, yeah. and then they took when they took out energy, right? Was a May June? Yeah, that's when I felt with some accordance that okay, we're, this is the bottom. And right? energy one hundred percent down on uh, multiple compression only. Hun- nothing fundamentally changed. Nothing at all. fundamentally changed. Only got better. And so, is it different this time? So why do you have to go back and say we? Everybody was saying capitulation. Do you need capitulation? No, you don't. I don't think capi- so. No, you don't need capitulation in a market like this. And I, I have always not said it's different this time. But what I will say this is that we, investors or society, have to give ourselves a break. What we've been through the last couple of years yeah, is un- yeah. it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's unbelievable. But stocks have done well though. Well, it's because no, of the free dude, money. I'm so with you on this this concept. In Game of Thrones, we we are a reek. We are. Do you watch Game of Thrones? Nobody in this fucking room ever watched this. <laughs> you, no idea what I'm talking about. I watched House of the Dragon. All right, so literally, there's a character in the show who's a prince, uh, Theon, and he ends up. I don't know what the scientific term is, but they like remove his manhood, and then they put him in a cage and raise him like a dog, and they beat the shit out of Wait, him they, every day. They, they cut off his Johnson. They literally, like, literally, it's one of the most brutal things that happened the whole ten seasons, and. He gets to a point where he's just so used to being beaten up and horrific things happening to him that when they come to rescue him, he fights back. He's like, no, I want to stay here. 
this is what I am now. Like, this is what I deserve. And they're like, well, okay. They went back to the boats. Um, I think speaking of my generation, like we start off with the dot-com crash. We watch our parents bankrupt themselves basically. Yep. Right after WorldCom, Enron, 9-11. Then we have like a four-year bull market, boom, housing crisis. Two S&P cut in halves in the span of seven years. Um, it's almost like we don't deserve to just have a secular. So when this secular bull market started in 2013, it was really hard for people to feel good about it. Yeah, because think about what you just said. In, in the 2000s, the market strength in equities had nothing to do with U.S. stocks. It's nothing. It was all about emerging markets yeah, and decoupling and all that bullshit, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? But it was really, whether or not you believe me, it was 2009, 2009 10 or, or 2013, 13. whatever. Well, I'm going by taking out the previous cycles. So, yep. by the way, 17,000 on the Dow in 2000, right? Mm-hmm. And then again in 2007. So when you broke that and the S&P broke its old high, like that's how – we don't date the start of a secular bull market from the bear market low. No, 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 no. So 09, yes, we had a rally off of 09. I agree with you, but here's the counterpoint. A bear market starts at the top. What do you mean? A no, bear but- market doesn't start. You measure a bear market from the top. So ipso fact that you should measure a bull market from the bottom. Yeah, but we don't. But well, we do. se- No, secular, secular. Oh, okay. We say 1982 to 2000 is a secular bull market. We don't start it in 74. You know, you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense to you? Yep. Okay, yep. when like when do we say the the, the post World War II bull market started? Not not in nineteen thirty three, nineteen forty five. So that's what I'm saying. So twenty thirteen, you take out the prior cycles high and keep going. Yep. I look at that and I say, this feels like a new secular bull market, but I'm afraid to say it out loud. I have a blog post about it. I don't want to be the the asshole that jinxes it for everyone by saying new secular bull market, but that's what it was, like in hindsight. I could be your Doug. Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. okay. Can we talk about this? So Josh and I were speaking the other day that all of the negative return from the market this year is from multiple compression Mm -hmm. because earnings are still up. So multiples are squished 20%. And we were saying, how much do earnings fall, generally speaking, in a recession? And a day later, a day later, I read your post. (laughs) Brian wrote, median peak to trough decline in S&P 500, LTM, what's that, last 12 months? Yep. EPS during a recession is 18%. We haven't seen any real downtick this year as the number is over 5%. So what, what what's going on here? Normally, it's it's 18% decline. Here, there we go. Josh, look at that. 18% decline well, in earnings. But we're not, we're, up. we're not in a recession. I understand that. Yeah. So why would you expect to see that? Bingo. Yeah. What's up? That's what I'm talking <laughs> about. Um, <laughs> so that means just do the math, you know, then we get 23. Now, now we need a 23% pullback to just kind of get back into the median, whatever. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Can you think of a bigger, can you think of another multiple compression period like this Outside that, of didn't, a, that didn't coincide or lead up to a recession? You can't, right? No, but, but yeah, I keep going back to like 1990 and you know what's really funny? You should get an economist on here and ask them what kind of re- ask them what kind of recession we're in. We do that every week. So there's three types, of, the, the three C's of, of of recessions, right? So the consumer recession, mm. credit recession, mm. capex recession, right? So which one is it going to be? Uh, capex. Well, what you think co- it's ca- we haven't had any capex? How can we have a recession? 
right? So also they'll say consumer because they always default to the consumer. Also, but, like enterprise spending is the new capex. Like, and yeah. It's but not going Brian, anywhere. what if what if the reason why things haven't softened is because there was so much pent up demand from people waiting to get out, and everybody was going to travel, and everybody had stimulus money, and we're now working our way through it. Yeah, the U.S. consumer never bet against the U.S. consumer, right? We're just in it. That goes back to the statement I said before: Are we going to stop spending money all of a sudden? Nope. Nope. I mean, it's like crack, right? Um, or it's like when you have one Skittle, you can't just have one Skittle. You're going to have like 45 of them, right? So um, I think it's going to be stronger than everybody thinks. I think this the earnings probably going to go down. My earnings number is too high. Shocker, right? For what, 23? For 22. I don't do a 23 until November. What's two, your 22 number? 245. You're going to go, holy shit, you're, you're nuts. Um, but Where's right, the rest of the street at? Like 210? 220, something like that, 225. Right now, right now, uh, and we have the chart in the report, um, I think numbers are at 227, and they're down from two, for, for, for 20, they're, tre- they're trending 227, I'm sorry, down from 230, whoopity-doo. Yeah. Right? What's going on? Yeah. Well, people are bearish. You said, like, nobody's positioned for this. Sentiment trader, I don't know if you ever read his stuff, but it, this is John, a chart. John, can, can you put this one up? Yeah. This is a chart of institutional net speculative option premium. And this almost looks fake. Um, That's f-ing crazy. Last Wait week's now. panic hedging was three times more extreme than in 2008. What the? That's just because Pe- there's more people trading options people, now than People then. are so bared up. Do you agree with that? Like, 100%. It's just, it's just an option circus Nobody's mentally, or, or I don't know about financially, nobody's mentally positioned for a year-end melt-up. Nope. Because look at, the, cause look at the corollary from late 21 where nobody was long enough. That, I mean, it looks like a mirror. It looks like a mirror image. It's a spike higher and then a spike lower. It's, I think it's retail options trading. I don't, right? No, no, no. Not, that's, How too, do they that's too big. Hedging? That's too big. Look at that money. Look at that money. That's that can't be retail. No way. They also say, it no, also the says pro- institutional trader. The last, yeah, the last two or three years, there's oh, been that's a, in billions. Yeah, proliferation of multi-asset strategies and building out that product across every major money manager and every major brokerage firm in the U.S. So that's what that is. Mm. Has to be. Has to be. So what are they doing? Like the market breaks a moving average and they just start like selling calls or yep. buying puts? It's all, it's all, you know, rage against the machine. It's you all, could, you could also say that the market's acting a little bit better. John, throw up this next chart, please. So we had a pretty nice rally off the lows from June to the middle of August. Um, when we bottomed out in June, 40% of the market of the S&P 500 made a new 52-week low. So almost one in two stocks. On the recent pullback, now granted, we were like 6 or 7% higher, but almost no stocks made a new 52-week low. Like 5% of S&P 500 stocks made a 52-week low. That's really interesting. So the internals on this last dip lower were much better. Much better. Right. So many people don't know this, but um, I started my career at William O'Neill & Company, an investor's Oh, family. no way. Really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so I had the amazing opportunity to have this great mentor, William O'Neill. But then because he's Bill O'Neill, people, a lot of cool people have come by, like Charles Schwab and Peter Lynch and Warren Buffett. I had exposure to these guys. Like, I'm like 23 or 24-year-old punk. And I look at this chart as a former chartist. I started my first sell-side career after that at a place called Dane Bosworth as a technical analyst. And that looks to me like the semblance of a cup with a handle chart. Just like if you take a look at what happened in 2020, April, and then we had the cup, the handle, and then broke out. That's Mm. a huge breakout. 
And then it looks like this pullback here again, April, May, June is a bit of a cup. And now the handle's a little bit um a uh, little bit more extended, but it looks like a couple of the handles. It's which, like a saucer. It's yeah, like a saucer. which I learned that you have the saucer and you have the handle, right? That's really bullish from right here. People laugh at uh, pattern analysis, but like the cup and handle, the psychology behind why that makes sense to me is so intuitive. You get this dip and then it it, it falls off, but it falls off much less so and then resumes and gets back to where it originally fell off from. And the people that didn't buy the dip, are now scrambling as yep. prices make new highs. That seems like a very intuitive psychological thing that investors do to themselves all the time. So that's why that's why I think like some kind of pattern analysis makes sense. Uh, I hope this resolves that way. No, I, I think so. And it also kind of follows through with the theme of our, our report, Hold the Line. I didn't was not thinking about technical analysis when I wrote this, but I mean, clearly you want to know if you're – an old technical term, you're not, you don't want to be uh, catching a falling anvil, right? And, right. I, and that that's what 2020 was, the falling anvil. I mean, that was probably one of the the best capitulations so, I've seen in my career. So if we get so if we get into third quarter earnings, like two weeks in, so yep. if we get two weeks in, we will have heard from the large banks, and I think a couple of retailers. You'll see you'll see some tech too. Okay. So if we get through that portion of earnings season and there's just not this apparent deterioration or meltdown, that could start the performance chase I feel, yeah, I, into be, new highs. I feel like I'd be ready to call in Q3 if earnings don't soften, they're not going to. What Correct. Do you think, what do you think about that? I think that's true, but I still think people are so stuck on inflation. That number's got to come start coming down. That's got to be part of the equation. That's got to be part of it. Okay. That's got to be part of can it. Can we talk about the case for us? So, so – the case for a soft landing, uh, is this Hatius? So Jan Hatius spoke to the journal, and he made a few key points. He just said, basically, forget history. There's, history is not a guide for the current environment, so just throw all of this out the window. He said inflation expectations and break-evens are coming down. A cooling labor market should manifest itself as lower vacancies and wage growth and not necessarily higher unemployment. So I want to look at a chart that you put in your report, Brian, yep. showing that for every recession— uh, unemployment was never below 5.5%. But normally, it's it's way above that. Right now, we just got, we just got uh, what are the recent numbers? We're, we're, are we still under four? Oh, you're showing where the unemployment rate at recession end is? Yeah. So what do you, why, tell us what you're telling us here. I'm telling you. Tell us what you're telling us. <laughs> show me. Show me what you're showing. Um it's going to be really difficult. Let's just keep the math simple. It's going to be really difficult to get to that 5.5% from here. Is that because there's so many job openings or what exactly? Well, people are, well, not, they're not, there's job openings, there's job, non-job seekers, there's the underemployed. And I mean, let, let's be, let's call it what it is. 2021 is a good year for financial services, right? I mean, and, but 2022 is a different year yeah. and we're spending money. We're going out with clients it's not going to be as good a year. But so those wages are going to come down come down a little bit, but then the bottom end is going to come up. So I don't really see this whole notion of massive wage issues, but I to to get to get above 5, we need to see almost a percent to get, a, to get above 5%, 5 percent unemployment. Un, unemployment, yeah. We need to see massive job losses. Where and would that, those even come? I'm trying to think like where would those even they're not coming from hospitality clearly. They're not coming from maybe I is technology the source of is that what everyone's worried about when Netflix does a layoff? 
No, because you can hear lo- Apple, Microsoft slowing their hiring. Right. It's like, where would those job losses even come they'll from? They'll just go absent somewhere else a, in absent tech. Absent a crisis. Right. They'll just go somewhere else in tech. Yeah. But you're right in the hospitality side. I mean, they still don't have enough workers there. Maybe never will. Maybe never will. Right. But, but going back to the, the premise of we're going back to work, right? So yeah. from three to five days eventually, and this is going to be a process in the next couple of years, that's going to force people to get off their couches and stop playing Call of Duty and, and trying to trade stocks. And, and, and that, that, that phase is over, I believe. You don't think that a lot of companies have just adopted a permanent um, hybrid or work-from-home policy, especially gigantic companies like in technology? Like if companies like uh, Alphabet that, I don't know, what do they have, 100,000 employees or something? They're not telling people to come back in. Goldman Sachs is. But yeah, like the, there are some big employers the, that are just the they're banks good are, with how it is. The banks are. But like, now, you, now you're talking about um, human nature and these companies are covering their ass because they don't want to get sued. Right. And oh, oh, you're telling me I have to be in the office five days a week? Oh, yeah. I have I have anxiety about uh, the vid and the cron and everything yeah. else. I got to wear a mask, and eh. so we have to. That's going to take a while to unwind. I think that shit has to end immediately, but, but it, it has just, to it, end. It's just, but it's not going to. I don't think it's. I don't think it's happening. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think five days a week is going to be a thing ever again. Yeah, I really don't. I don't. My, look how well. Not. Look how well we handled. Of course, zero days in. So why go back to five? I mean, I'm all for it if companies want to do it, but— I don't know about you guys, but I'm massively efficient working at home. Yeah. Way more efficient. Yeah. I'm inefficient both places. So, <laughs> uh, so it, doesn't, it doesn't really help me one way or the other. All right. So, but do you agree with this take, though? Uh, history is not a good guide to the present. There's just too much unprecedented shit going on. We turned the economy off for a year. Well, and then we what precedent? And then we hit it with ten. You talked dollars. about it earlier. You what precedent is there? You for tried this? to make. You tr- tried to get me to say it's different this time. No, I didn't. It is. Well, I. I it's unprecedented. Think about this. Is why we have to cut ourselves some slack. I here. say it's different every time. We've never so. seen this before, man. And yeah. think about how strong we were as a country, number one, but also as a human race, and how how hard we pivoted, man, to do what we needed to do in terms of keeping our society open and our business open as well. It was amazing. So, no, I, I do think it's unprecedented. And that's why I think more and more that I think it's going to be a couple more months before people start to figure it out. And it's probably going to be earnings. But more than anything, maybe a dip in inflation to say, we're not we're not going okay. to the end of the world. Uh, instances of inflation above 5% back to 1946. Zero examples of that inflation being cured by anything other than a recession. Every single time mm-hmm. the recession has cured it. Uh, soft landings. Here, this is the journal. The main obstacle to a soft landing is the historical record. In the three soft landings since World War II, 1965, 1984, 1994, the Fed wasn't trying to push inflation down. It was trying to keep it from going higher. At times like the present when inflation was too high and the Fed set out to push it lower, a recession always occurred. Hatia says that's too small a sample size and it's mostly the 70s and 80s. What do you say to that? It is mostly the 70s, 80s. I, I remember I was an analyst in 1994 and I saw what was going on there. And and then when the Fed made the pivot in 95, that really started the nifty 50. Yeah. And then- Crazy rally. Crazy. It was nuts. Yeah. Uh, and then and then tech. But tech really didn't come out until 96, 97. Really, 97 is when it really got going The high. internet IPOs were all in 97. Yeah. Qualcomm, I think. Yeah. Um, so I think the 70s and 80s, 
probably are better, but at, at, at the end of the day, if you take a look at, I mean, it's, it's so dangerous not to say it's different this time. You take a look at the con, the construct of earnings in our in our country and in the market are much different now. Oh yeah, than they were in the seventies and eighties. Much different. And if you go back into the forties or the thirties, right? People forget that our country's economy in the nineteen thirties was primarily agricultural. You know, the the notion of the of the dust bowl was because we had this period of of higher temperatures and the farmers lost all their money and plus there was no money to go around to feed people. The the fields dried up. That was a dust bowl because the majority of our, our business in the United States was agricultural. Still was. It wasn't until World War II that we became massive industrial and then we became obviously the great consumer nation in the 40s and 50s. And Michael and, that, and I Michael and I have been fighting that battle on the blogs for like a decade, like the Cape Ratio shit. Oh. What the f are you comparing us to? Like you're comparing us to st a steel mill economy. That's the multiple that you think the modern U.S. economy should have. Is is we at the bottom at at eight times ten years worth of earnings? It's like it's like almost it's almost absurd. But that's still out there. That's still a thing. Like we haven't washed out enough yep. on one year on ten year. I don't know. Maybe, so between sixteen and eighteen, that's where we are now. That's enough. Yeah, I think so. We've been through enough. I think we've been through 16 enough. Sixteen and eighteen PE trailing twelve months. It's like enough. I think we've been through enough. And then okay. just going back to what I said before in terms of, you know, where's the money going to come from? Well, it's going to come from some FOMO, but I think it also is going to come from from non-U.S. investors coming back here. Okay, I like that idea. Who's Like like who? The Europeans will have no money if you listen to, uh, if you listen to <laughs> recent news reports. They will spend all of their money on electricity. Um, well, they still have to invest, right? They're still investing. Uh, the Chinese are buying Canadian real estate. As a safe deposit box. What yeah, they're buying Western Canadian are? real estate. But the, the cool thing about Canadians and being up there now for 10 years in terms of covering that market is the best contrarian market ever. Because in, in just this last couple of months, they've had the biggest outflows in Canada since 2017. And then after that, 2018, 2019, great years for the Canadian market. Everybody in Canada is scared shitless about the banks. And so what are the banks doing? Now they're starting to become more conservative again. That's when you buy the banks in Canada because mm. they're excellent stewards of capital in Canada. Amazing managers in terms of cash flow and dividends. And so I think Canada's coming along for the ride, but unfortunately they have some other issues in terms of politics and things like that up there. But there's so many great- We don't, have, we don't have those here. We have no <laughs> we have no issues politics here. Um, but I, I think money's coming back. I think money's coming back. Are the things that are falling now enough to take inflation down to where the Fed will feel comfortable not doing 75 basis points every time? Like what? What do we, we have this freight cost chart? So the the uh, the cost of ship a forty foot container from China to the U S West Coast now stands around fifty four hundred dollars a box, down sixty percent mm -hmm. from January. Mm -hmm. What's this? I mean, it's Cru it, the, the uh, crude oil is down a lot from its high. Gasoline is down a lot from its high. Housing is coming down, which is, which might be present another challenge. But uh, it looks like inflation has peaked. That's been our call, and. From the housing perspective, though, we we still need massive supply, so prices are probably going to go lower as we add more supply. But how psychologically important is the housing market to consumer spending, to the stock market overall? That you have this uh, housing affordability index, the year-over-year -year change. It's the worst we've seen going back to 1972. <laughs> Could you make that chart smaller? Look, look, is there any way? Look, here we, we go. go. There we oh, go. here we go. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about that, Brian. <laughs> he showed you a postage stamp. <laughs> Not my contact. So what is yeah. this? Uh, National Association 
Association of Realtors Housing Affordability Index. It's a year-over-year change. Uh, well, if pr- prices have fallen uh, six given, months in a row, given this that, will get more affordable. Given that the 30-year 30 30-year mortgages went from 3.3% up to 6%, and the median house went from whatever, 240 to 370 or whatever it is, yeah, hasn't got a lot less affordable. And doesn't that have a big impact on consumer psychology, spending, all that sort of stuff? It, it does, but look at like, remember 2008 where people are just handing their keys over and they, they'd rather hold hand their key over to their mortgage and still go to Costco to buy 10 cases of Diet Mountain Dew and some water, right? So so the consumer still, we're, we're <laughs> weird. about to do. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, that, that's, yeah. Why would you drink Diet Mountain? That's not a great comp, I guess. Uh, <laughs> next, so, all right, next Tuesday, the 13th, we're going to get the next CPI print. Um, this feels like the market event of the year. Uh, the debate over 50 versus 75 is over 75. because it's 75. Yeah. Nick Timoray printed it yesterday before the bell. So he, that's it. The new that's, Woj. He's the Woj of the financial sector. The, right. So, so, uh, 75 basis points, w- w- then we're going to get, then we're going to get a, uh, then we're going to get an unemployment number and then the fed's going to, uh, have its meeting or, or we got the jobless claims. We'll get the. We'll get the inflation, and then the Fed will have its meeting. Brian, what do you think about— What do about, we do from there? Wait, hang on. What do you think about— Sorry, I, I don't know why I just hang on. Gotta love it. What do you think about this idea that at some point, if we're not there yet, fixed income will be a viable alternative for equities? Like at what yield do people say, you know what? I don't really want to pay uh, 15 times 60. I don't really want the stock. I'll just take some bonds. I, I love to answer that question with— Think of think of the person that bought a ten year treasury at ten basis points in March of twenty twenty. That's crazy. How are they feeling? Yeah. What's that real rate of return? Might as well have bought an arc. Negative fifteen. Exactly. I mean, think about this. We we get people give me shit for talking about a secular bull market in, in equities. We've had a forty year bull market in bonds. How come people aren't talking about that? The the unwind of the forty year bull market is happening before our very eyes. I think you can have tactical trades in fixed income now. Whether or not that's at ten at four percent, or when you start buying it again, because then you'll see some appreciation. But the majority of returns that people have received from fixed income is because of performance, not because of yield. It's a fallacy. It's a complete fallacy in terms of the whole balance portfolio thing. So is there a magic number? I don't know. Maybe it is 4%. I don't know what it is. But again, as part of this whole transition back to normalcy, I think that we're going to return to normalized returns, normalized earnings growth, normalized fixed income or 10-year treasury, somewhere between 3 and 4%. Maybe it's 4 or 5%. I don't know what it is, but it's going to be a, some sort of a tight range. So what the Fed does here in near term, I think you're, on to, you're either on something or on to something. Both. I think, Thank you. You like my joke. Um, I think I think next week's a seminal week. Yeah. So so if if we have a seventy five point, well, so here here's the point I wanted to ask you about. So yesterday before the bell, Tim Reyes publishes. He says the Fed is leaning towards seventy five. So it's a done deal. Stock market go, uh, Dow goes up four hundred fifty points. Nasdaq outperforms. Nasdaq goes up two percent. What does that tell you about? how the market will probably now handle um, a, a, a good inflation. What's a good inflation print? Seven, nine, eight, Dude, eight. Oh, I don't know. Second, just give me some derivative in the other direction. Just give me any direction down. Even a lack of acceleration is like good enough. Correct. In, okay. All right. So how, how does the, how does this market react to a seven handle inflation print for the month of August? What if it's eight, five? What if it picks up again? Uh, that would be very bad. I, I mean, based on how they calculated it, Definitely it, could. It, it could. Likelihood is low, very low. 
but then maybe that's the low. Okay. We revisit, we, I mean, you think we revisit the June low? No, okay. I mean, not that low. Okay. No, not fire and ice. So in no. either, so in either case, barring like an alien invasion, this is the inflation print you buy. Correct. Okay. And then we get the 75 basis point. They've already done two of those. So you get the third. And now we're all going to debate 50 or 25 at the next meeting, right? Or do they go into January or do they end it this year? Like whatever, whatever that debate is. Um, and then the other thing that's lingering out there is the increasing pace of quantitative tightening. Do you not care? It's hard to get you excited about that one. No, I can't get excited. Okay, why? They should be doing it. Yeah, well, they, they should have been doing. They should have been doing it uh, nine months ago. Correct. When we housing were, was up forty percent over two years, that would be the time to. Uh, we were, we were, we were very critical of the Fed in twenty twenty one, just like we were critical of the Fed in in two thousand twelve, thirteen, and fourteen. I mean, stop this. Enough's enough. Yeah. And but let's go back to it. it, it strategists invest, and economists are late. So the economists were late. They were completely wrong in their forecasts. The Fed was late. Why? Because they're a bunch of economists, and they're looking backward. So we're fo- we talked a lot about unemployment. Dude, they, can I ask you about that? They have they have 400 PhDs in that f-ing building, and they were buying mortgage bonds six months ago. What what is going on there? What are they think? What was the thinking? What was the thinking behind zero percent interest rate policy with the stock market at record highs, housing home prices at record highs, and employment? On its way, to unemployment on its way to zero. What? What do you? How think could they, it get any better? Than well, that? What? What do you think they were thinking? I guess is what I. I I'd be curious. I don't to. even want to pretend to, to even imagine what how an economist thinks. Yeah, I, okay. I just don't get it. I, I. I don't. I've never gotten it, and I've taken a lot of shit for it over the years by giving economists crap, and I'm probably going to get to after this. But um, it just falls back in my thing about academic. We we're so afraid to be. Do you remember the the bullshit in February March of 2020? It's going to be the Great Depression. Well, GDP is going to go down. Like, I'm, I'm part of that. 40%. Yeah. I'm like, this is egregious, you know? Yeah. But um, no, I don't. The, the answer to your question, I don't know. Now, now you asked me about when I should be bearish, right? Shoulda, coulda, woulda. When that shit was going on, I should have pulled the plug. I should have uh, actually pulled the plug. What and, pulled the plug? Pulled the plug and said, this is going to be a rough patch for the next year when, when, when we were seeing that silliness. I probably should have. But the problem with that is because I also run money. When you sit across the table from someone, you say, sell, they're not coming back. They are not coming back. Mm, that's why we say underweight. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, you, know, you talked about utilities. I that's hate, a really great point. You, I, can't, you, can't, you can't tell somebody the game, game over. They won't come back. It's not investment advice anyway. It's, it's childish. It's yeah. not – the people that are doing that in, on social media whatever don't manage any money. They manage no. newsletter subscriptions. Correct. Right. Or strategists that come out and say, sell – They've never sat across the table no, from a client. They're left out of the room. Yeah, and and I've lost money for clients, and it's excessively humbling, and you have to kind of go through that. And this has been a humbling year for me to be bullish, but at the end of the day, I have my convictions, and I believe what I believe. And oh, by the way, every time I'm on halftime report, right? Don't take, t- don't take this up with me. No, 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 no. <laughs> and another thing. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. And, and they grill me. Can say it. And what? they grill me. I actually get AUM. It's part of the show, dude. I get AUM. And I and I talked to Wapner about it. I said, thank you. And he goes, why? Because I love it when you grill me because people give me more money. Of course, because it forces your conviction to come out. And people watching television respond to people with conviction. And Wapner is the best. I think he's the best host. I, I mean, I've seen for 20 years every host on every financial show. Um, other than Rukeyser, different era. 
I really think Wapner's the best because— I was on Rukeyser. Were you? Yes. What were you, 14 years old? Again, I was 12 years old. Were you a page? Uh, I was scared shitless. What would you, what'd you say to Rukeyser? I was December— Buy him. No, no. <laughs> no, actually, it was December of 2020, and yeah. I had just went to an underweight okay. in, in, in um, tech, okay. and he was giving me shit. And Rubini was Wait, on— when was this? December of 20, December of 2020. Louis Rukeyser? He's not with with us. No, 20, 2000, 2000. Oh, okay. All right. Sorry. I had a say, you might have imagined there, this. moment. <laughs> you might have remember, imagined this episode, I, Brian. Uh, uh, who, who's the guy? Uh, Laszlo, Laszlo Barini was on. Oh, like, yeah, Mowski, yeah. why are you so bearish? The market's yeah. going up. I was like, no, it's not. Yeah. And I, every, I was so scared backstage. I was like shaking. I remember that. Friday night in Owings Mills, Maryland. Is that where they taped it? Yeah. Yeah, none of this Skype shit either. You no, none of the Skype shit, You had to go there. I remember. Uh, so, so you were saying Scott's the best, but what were you saying? Well, I was Rukeyser, making the point that back, yeah. Scott will force the conviction out of a guest so that they actually say something meaningful for the audience. But he Haynes does that did really too. Well. Haynes did too. Haynes did it too. That's Haynes right. Haynes did it too. Shout to, uh, shout to the judge. Yep. Um, all right. So if 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 you feel like, just to, just to kind of button this up and then we'll move on. Yeah. But so you agree with me, whatever comes out next Tuesday, the 13th, that's really going to be meaningful for psychology, for positioning. Like people are going to have to say, do I really want to stick with this recession shit now or this this bearish uh, point of view or do I want to rethink that? So I said earlier about it's all about inflation, right? But do you know you know what's going to come out? Well, you know, earnings still might suck. You're still going to see that. You're, you're, that's going to be the narrative. It also might the, still be true. Of the bearish narcissist that they create. <laughs> oh, man. They're nihilists. You're in for it. You're in for it. <laughs> Uh, did you have fun today on the show? I did. It was amazing. You know, I, I wanted it to be sooner when I got the invite, but you know, God's got a plan and this is all the part timing of me being is awesome. timing is amazing. So, uh, all right. So I think your research is great and I think you have a really great way of delivering it. Absolutely love it. I know you don't write publicly, um, cause you write research for the bank, but, uh, is there a place that you have ever considered doing something a little bit more publicly like a Substack or LinkedIn? Like, do you have any interest at all in like putting stuff out for everyone else or not really? Uh, it's a great question. We do have because you, of- You've thought about it, right? Yeah, of course. Um, you're a good writer. Thank you. Um, we do publish, we do put up, um, we, we're allowed to put up two media links every week on LinkedIn. All right. Well, so, listen, it's better than none. So we're putting yours up. Okay. Um, so right. thank you very much. Awesome. And so, no, we're humbled to be here, but no, I, listen, I, when you write for so long and you, I have a great opportunity to travel around the world and talk to people. If you have conviction on how you present, you should be able to write. And if you're able to write, you should be able to present that period. I remember when I was interviewing for a self big sell side job in 20, in 2002 here in New York. And they told me, you come work for us. You'll never write again. I said, guess what? I'm not taking the job. Yeah. How, how do you know what you think if you're not if you're not forced to commit it to paper? I feel like that's an integral part of investing is being able to communicate why you feel a certain way. A absolutely. And I think, you know, I've used the word humble a couple times. And, you know, I've been humbled several times in my career. I've lost my job three times. And yeah. it's it's amazingly, I knew, I didn't know the first time. I knew the, <laughs> I knew number two and number three that were coming. But, um, it's amazingly humbled. And I think this, this job is the, it's the coolest job in the world. Coolest job in the world. And it, it makes Why? me... Because 
everything changes every day. I love managing chaos. I love it. And I love fixing things. Um, I'm a truth seeker. I love to figure stuff out. And I've done that my entire life. And it served me well to, 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 to have this job. And you don't, I would never want to be, I've offered to be like an industry analyst early in my career. I'm like, why would I just want to cover 20 stocks where I can cover the entire yeah. market? And so that's what I based my entire career on. But, it, but more than anything, I, I love being right, baby. I love being right. <laughs> I hope you I, are right. I love being right. But I love also seeing people's faces on when I make them money or explain stocks. I mean, I don't think – I come from a different generation of strategists. I don't think strategists nowadays know how to tell stories. They know how to tell stories and themes on why you buy things. And that's they why get, we – Because they get mocked for it because quant is sexy now. But the bears are sexy. They're so eloquent, and they can have all these great charts and this analysis. And you know, bears are smart, but bulls. By make the way, money. they're usually uh, British and Canadian. The perma bears, <laughs> and and uh, I found that as well. So I saw so. Rosenberg, David Rosenberg, my very good friend and former colleague um, at at Merrill. And I was having a beer with a broker. When did you guys work at Merrill? You were was was Rich. Uh, Rich was my boss. So, Okay, uh, so it's Rich Bernstein, you, and Rosenberg all at Merrill at the same time? Correct. That's f***ing crazy. Oh, it's f it was f – that's why you asked me earlier. What was what, my what era? Tell me that era. What 2005 era 2005 to 2009. It's like three of the smartest people that have ever worked at Merrill. And oh, you guys were all there at the same time. It was amazing. And to be at the table with all these people. And Savita was was somewhere too? Savita sat next to me Mar on one side, Marianne Bartels on the other. Wow. She was the technician. Yep. Now she's the stra a strategist? Or? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah, she was the technician. And okay. – and but the th coolest thing about Merrill was you always had to be on. You didn't mm. know what question was coming your way. And it was an amazing experience. So a couple of weeks ago, I was in Toronto having a beer with a broker. And I said, you know, watch this. Rosenberg's sitting over there. So I go over to Rosie from behind and I give him a big bear hug. Mm. And I kiss him on the cheek and I go, hey, Rosie, baby. Mm. He starts screaming, it's got to be Belsky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like we're, we are so diametrically opposed. I was going to say, we, you guys are like the, he's like the bizarro version of you or you're the bizarro version of him. Like you're complete opposite. But there's mutual respect because I would never be able to spew out macro data like this man. The man is prolific he, and he would never be able to talk about why the thematic reason why I want to own Apple or Netflix or why I like the big banks. Versus the okay. He, he can't do that. And he respects that and he lets me do my thing. Right. So oh, that must have been quite a time. And Rich was the boss. Rich was the chief investment strategist. Yeah. I did US and sectors. Savita was quant. Okay. It, it was an amazing time. I'm a big fan of Rich's stuff. I, I get his stuff once a month. It's like always very refreshing. He's still at it. He's still doing what he does. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this it's easy to because you have that passion. You love your job. Yeah. And he's done a good job kind of morphing into the money management thing. And he's yeah. had such a following in the retail side as I did as well. And, and Rich kind of really allowed me to do what I did. You know what I noticed? I'm glad you said that. Like when you bump into uh, former Merrill people, they still worship the strategist that was there when they were there because that was the story they told to their client every month. Well, they would say, well, let me tell you what Belsky's saying, you know, and like they, they continue on and follow that person's work no matter what bank they end up going to. Do you find that? Very much so. I was there four years and I'm still Brian from Merrill. Yeah. yeah. And people still remember me from Merrill. But that's cool because- it's super cool. Because Mother Merrill is always going to be, even though they killed the brand, yeah. which I still will never understand to this day, but uh, that's still a little bit of a badge of honor on the retail 
financial advisor I, side. Yesterday like I afternoon, worked at Merrill. I got 15 emails from yeah. Merrill Lynch brokers. Yeah, they remember you. Yeah, from from just and they have your back to this day. Of course they do. Yeah, that, just don't <laughs> f- up your earnings <laughs> estimate f- here. <laughs> well, listen, I, you held your you held your own, uh, and you always do, and uh, certainly on this show as well. This is the part where we're going to do favorites, and then we're going to let you get out of here and go to Tel Aviv or or whatever you're doing. <laughs> uh, Michael, you're up first. Uh, our friend Kai Wu, who's been on the show before, did a post. Um, what did he call it? He called it liquid venture capital, where he reconstructed a venture capital portfolio using publicly traded companies. And he did a killer job. I'm just going to this one chart. Wait, how, what does that mean? I'll show you. Okay. Is the chart going to be like a stamp size no, no, no. again? Look at this. Yeah, Look at this. It. So the red line is Cambridge Associates U.S. Venture Capital Index. And the green line is what he was able to replicate using publicly traded stocks. Hmm. Pretty wild, right? Yeah, how? Using patent data and market cap and earnings growth and all that sort of stuff. But the thing that I thought was so interesting in this post is the following. Of the 1,495 U.S. venture deals in the first half of the year, only 4.9% have been a down round. Look at that. No down rounds yet in venture capital. How is that possible? They're just not doing it. Or they're not reporting it? No, no, no. They're not, no. They're like, here, just take this money and we'll put out no, a press these are release off, no, no, no. later. <laughs> these are of the rounds that have been reported. Only 4.9 have been down, which is a historic low. Wow. So uh, I would have thought that would be so much worse by now. Not yet. Not it's yet. coming. It's got to be coming. There's no, there's no, there's no spacks to take these unless, things. Unless, uh, it, unless it's a secular bull market. Anyway, read that piece from Kai. It was excellent. Uh, Sparkline Capital. What do you got for favorites? Book, movie, TV show, piece of research, podcast. What, what are you into these days? Um, everybody always asks me what my favorite investment book is. Yeah. That's what we want. Has nothing to do with investing. Okay, great. It's called The Art of Contrary Thinking. It was written by Humphrey Neal. And it talks about that. Okay. And it it talks about thinking differently. And I based my entire career on that. When was it written? I think in the 1920s or 30s. Still relevant? <laughs> yes. More relevant than ever. More relevant than okay. ever. That's why I love to pick on consensus. If everybody says this color bottle's blue and they believe it, it's actually really green. Isn't the consensus sometimes right? Or is it like it's good to be contrary all the time? Does no. that always serve your, your interests? So, so great question. It's always right to be contrarian if you have the analysis to back it up. Okay. If you don't, then it's wrong. Mm. Okay. You know, like being focusing only on the Cape Schiller. Yeah, no, that's not contrarian. Me. You won't and, catch but, me doing but, that. Oh, by the way, it's wrong though, right? You can be contrarian and believe that, or you can be like Sock Jen, who's always bearish. You see uh, Grantham, Super Bubble. Oh, my God. And Barron's puts it on the cover. They love it. Barron's, I think, calls him and says, please just say some crazy shit. Please. We, every time that we happens. We don't have a feature story this week. Every time that happens. How many people send it to you? Three, four hundred. But you can't dislike Grantham because he's so I, eloquent. We need him. And we need him. I need yeah. him. Okay. He completes me. What if he's right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right. Uh, I want to talk about uh, the Howard Stern show came back from summer break and his dad died uh, this summer and he spent the whole show. Uh, and like for Stern listeners, uh, Michael's like a Howard Stern super fan. He's been mocking his dad and his dad's voice and his mom for, I don't know, 40 years on the yeah. radio. But he like really spent like two hours or so like picking apart – not in a good way, like dissecting his relationship with his dad. And they were not like really close, but they yeah. were really close. And uh, this whole story where his dad had a glass eye his entire life and never talked about it once, like never once complained about it, never referenced it, 
nobody around him would ever reference it. It was just like one of those things that people from that generation yep. um, stubbornly lived with, mm-hmm. and you would never hear a word about it. And I just thought that whole anecdote was insane. Um, but I just thought like the way that w- was handled on the air, like Howard Stern being very serious, and I thought it was it was like beautiful, kind of. So uh, I almost called my dad after I didn't, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a, if you have the XM Serious app and you're you're a subscriber, you could find that episode. It's from Tuesday um, of this week. It was Tuesday show. Uh, all right, that's all I have. What what are we doing at the end of this today? Anything? It's future proof is uh, four days away. Are you are you like Duncan? You've been awfully quiet. We'll be doing a live a live show. Well, what are we doing though? We're doing live comp- compound and friend show and animal spirits and animal spirits. Wait, all right. is our show going? Is our show with Cheryl going to be up on Friday? That's the plan. Yeah. That's the plan. So it's not live, but Animal Spirits, you are doing live. No, no, no. no. We no, are no, no. doing it live. No, I mean, so it's live like like a, an album is live. Okay. You know for, what I mean? But you can't actually do a live podcast. You have to actually hit publish on it once it's recorded. Right. You're, yeah. We're saying the right. same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Live to tape. We're doing it live in front of an audience. Live to tape. We're doing is, it live the, in front yeah. of live an audience. Tape. Do yeah. you have a guest for Animal Spirits or it's just you and Ben? That's just me and Ben. Okay, so you're doing that what day? Mm. Great. Tuesday? I believe it. I believe it's uh, Tuesday. When are we doing the Compound and Friends? Also Tuesday? Later in the day, yeah. <laughs> Michael's doing eight podcasts on Tuesday. Anyway. Michael got uh, me a Tropical Bro shirt. I saw. We're going to have a great time at Future Proof. For those of you that are going, congratulations. You're going to be at the biggest wealth management event of all time. And uh, can't wait to see you there. If you're not going, no FOMO. We'll be recording all our shows. We have great guests. We're gonna have uh, we're gonna have a lot of fun, and you guys will get to watch it on YouTube, listen on the podcast. So look for that. Thank you so much to Brian Belsky. This was so much fun. So we could have done hours with you, dude. Like we gotta have you come back. I would love it. What are I you doing tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> too yeah, soon. <laughs> too, too soon. Can we? No, but all kidding aside, can we have you back in December so we can see how accurate you were, or if not, I, what I would love it. what might have gone wrong? We could do I that. Would love it. Yeah, we would love to have you back, man. Hold the feet to the fire. All right, Nicole will uh, will email you eventually. All we'll right. set that up. All right, you're the man. You Thanks did a so great much, job man. today. I appreciate it. Thank you. We appreciate it. Compound and friends. We will see you guys uh, next week. Thanks for listening. So uh, that was a good warm up. Do you, you feel like you're ready to do it for real?